please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 12. You'll want to keep your finger in Genesis 12 after that reading, because we have a New Testament reading that will follow it, and then I will be preaching from Genesis 12. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we come again before your throne of grace to ask for many good things. We are confident, Lord, that we cannot exhaust you. So we ask again, Lord, for your help upon this reading of scripture, your holy word and its preaching. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be a good plowman among us, breaking up the fallow ground of our hearts, making the soil of the heart good in each and all, so that the good seed of the word would find good soil and take root in us and shoot up strong and endure long and bear the fruit that you seek from it. Lord, help our sons and daughters today hear and recognize the voice of their master the Lord Jesus Christ. Help fathers and mothers. Help men and women. Oh Lord, be bountiful among us. Open your hands to us. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 12, verse 1 through through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in him, and in you, excuse me, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired at Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. This is God's word. Turn now to Galatians chapter 3. Verse 7 through 9. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Join me in Genesis 12 then. Well, beloved, this morning we begin a new series on the life of Abraham, a series that will take us from Genesis 12, where we hear of Abram's calling by God, up to Genesis 25, where we hear of Abram's death and burial in a cave. So in technical language, we are about to enter upon a series of the Abrahamic narrative. It will take us 14 chapters. Father Abraham is enormously important in learning the ways and the purposes of God with mankind. Abraham is so important to the Church of Jesus Christ, his name appears in 71 different verses of the New Testament, meaning it is not possible It is not possible for the apostles to explain the Christian faith without Abraham. It should not be possible for you either. You and I cannot think rightly or speak rightly about God without thinking and speaking about God's dealings with Abraham. In fact, the Old Testament, outside of the book of Genesis, the most common use of Abraham's name there is when God identifies himself as the God of Abraham. From within the burning bush, Yahweh said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Exodus 3.6. Those are the patriarchs, the fathers of our faith. Christians belong to a wonderful family, an old family, A mature knowledge of God will not try to go around the patriarchs. We must go through the patriarchs to know God. It is God's will that we do. In the New New Testament, Abraham does not fade a bit. He becomes even more prominent. In Romans 4.16, the Apostle Paul says to all believing Christians, Abraham is the father of us all because we share the faith of Abraham. And in Galatians 3.29, Paul says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. To be a Christian is to be a child of Abraham. To be a Christian is to have the faith of Abraham. To be a Christian is to have the God of Abraham. This means, beloved, there is no such thing as being a Christian without history, without ancestry, without inheritance. There is no such Christianity as that. Your covenant bond with God through Jesus Christ is ancient, grounded in the past. The foundations of your faith are not modern. The Christian faith is not a psychology that gets modified and revised and remade every 10 years. 
The Christian faith, rather, is the continuation of the ancient Abrahamic intervention of God's saving grace toward men and women who were once separated, cut off from God in the exile of sin. If the Reformed faith has been described as an Augustinian renewal movement, referring back to the great pastor and theologian Augustine from the fourth century, we can actually broaden that kind of language and historical referencing and say that the Christian faith is the continuation of the ancient Abrahamic intervention of the living God saving grace towards sinners in exile. And it is this very point about saving grace which brings us into our text this morning. Our being called to Christ is revealed here in verse 1. We hear God graciously intrude into Abraham's life, calling him out of exile, the exile of sin, the exile of death. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In other words, leave behind your past life in the world and join me in the kingdom of God. That's the substance of God's call to Abram. Abram is called to separate from the world system that he has been living in. We know from the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, that Abram grew up in a family of idolaters. Maybe you did too. I did. (laughs) Praise God, I have a new family where God has smashed all the idols. And every time we pick one up, he slaps it to the ground and steps on it. But I too, maybe you too, grew up as Abram in a family of pagan idolaters. His family had all the same priorities, all the same ambitions, all the same habits as the rest of the world. In Joshua 24.2, which is 450 years after Genesis 12, the Lord reminds his people where they came from. Quote, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. The Lord's call of Abram is a call that pierces, like a sword, into pagan unbelief, pierces into darkness, pierces into ignorance, pierces into sin. It is a call, this call of Abram, that pierces into the estrangement and the exile of divine wrath. This has happened to every Christian, too. This is why he is our father. Ephesians 2.12 says, You were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's Paul writing your autobiography. Give him the pen. He will tell the truth about you and me. We were once in death and darkness spiritually because of our sin. Yet when God calls anyone to Christ... The Lord takes out the sword 
which is the word of his mouth, and he pierces into the darkness. He doesn't coddle the darkness. He doesn't coddle the sin. He doesn't coddle the idolatry. He doesn't try to warm it up to have it sort of move towards him like an octopus on the deck of a boat. That's just a funny video I saw this week. He doesn't do anything to lure us to him. He pierces and brings truth and light, and we cannot see anything else once he does it. We cannot resist the piercing. This is what he's done with Abram. This is what he's done with all whom he has called out of the world and out of death. Now, you've heard me use the word exile a few times. Why am I using that? Well, because in Genesis 11 which is the chapter before where we are, Genesis 11, verse 7, Moses, the author of this book, records the great and terrible judgment God brought against the Tower of Babel and those building it. It says in verse 7 of chapter 11, the Lord said, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. So by divine judgment, God broke the unity that humanity had in one language. People would no longer be able to easily understand one another. And through this judgment, God scatters the human race over the face of the earth. Men are driven further into exile from God. Now, when God did this, we kept, we kept the idolatry of Babel in our hearts, but we could no longer easily unite and organize that idolatry into godless earthly glory. God saw to that. Well, this is what the Tower of Babel was about. It was about man's vainglory, and this helps us understand what happens in chapter 12. The Babel Tower was about reaching into the heavens, grasping the benefits which only God provides, but having them apart from God. That's what Babel's all about. What benefits? Immortality, protection, permanence. Be happy without God. That's what Babel was all about. Listen to what the lusty hearts of our ancestors say in Genesis 11.4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They wanted their glory to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Well, God certainly scattered them over the earth, but he utterly disabled their capacity to obtain glory. And then in the very next chapter, The Lord wants wants his church to see that in the midst of that judgment, which was definitely due to man, in the midst of that darkness, the Lord calls Abram. The Lord called Abram out of exile when Abram wasn't even looking for a way out. When Abram didn't even know there was a way out. When Abram didn't even know how urgent it was to get out. Abram was living in the city of destruction also known as the city of man. And no one in that condemned city was telling Abram to leave. Then the Lord, or to use a Paulinism, but God. But God then 
came. The heavenly evangelist came and spoke to Abram, leave your country, leave your clan, leave your father's house, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. God is going to make Abram's name great for the glory of God and for the good of the nations, which is the very opposite of what the Tower of Babel humanity wanted, to make their own name great for their own glory. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, beloved, that is grace. That is the foundation of faith. God seeks us when we have no ability and no interest to seek him. Do you have a family member who is showing such symptoms? (laughs) Do you have a friend who is showing such, such symptoms? They have no interest in seeking God. When you talk to them about the Lord, they seem to be as alive as a rock. But when you talk to them about the things of an earth that is under judgment and passing away, they are as live and animated as anybody can be. Do you have friends and family like that? Well, this is really important news for you. Grace is that which God placards before his church and before the world, that he is able and willing to save the most hardened and wicked of men, and that you and I should not cease to beg him for such grace. God comes to us when we are buried under a mountain of sin, that's Abram, crushed by condemnation, that's Abram, in the cold darkness of spiritual death, that's Abram, deserving only one thing from God, his wrath, that's Abram. He comes to us under those conditions. And if we like to say, I'm not under those conditions, I don't need grace, we won't have it. God will not honor the, proud of, the pride of men. God delights to come then, there, and make a display of his grace. He delights to call into existence things that do not exist. Romans 4.17. So God calls a pagan Gentile idolater named Abram and creates light where there was only darkness. Creates faith where there was only unbelief. Creates true ears where there was only deafness, creates true eyes, where there was only blindness. This, beloved, is grace. God moving towards men when men are not even at all moving towards God. Jesus himself said, I have come to seek and save the lost because there are no seekers except God. Men are not seeking God, not one, but grace is the living God seeking the worst of men. And the worst of men often look like the best of men to the world. But praise God, he knows what we are. So let us be sure to understand something. The only reason Abraham is the man of faith, as Paul calls him in our Galatians reading, is because of something more fundamental, something more basic, 
something more foundational than faith. Grace. You cannot be a man of faith without a foundation of grace. If divine grace had not first intruded into Abram's wicked life, then Abram would have been at best a man of works. But religious works, religious obedience, religious effort, none of that brings a man out of death. None of that brings a man out of darkness. None of that brings a man out of unbelief. What brings a man out of those is grace alone. What brings a sinner out is the great hound of heaven who dives in. And diving in speaks. And speaking promises goodness to the sinner at his own expense. An expense that was paid by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul explains this very same thing that I've just expressed. In Romans 4, 15 and 16, Paul says, the law brings wrath. You want to make people more ripe for the wrath of God? Tell them to be better without Jesus Christ. Tell them to be better without the grace of God. The law brings wrath. That's 4.15, which means that even if Abraham started adding more good works to his idolatry, he would never come out of idolatry. He would just be a more cleaned-up idolater. He would never come alive to God. Instead, God must go in and bring Abram out with a powerful and effectual call, a word of grace. And Romans 4.16 explains it. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. What does the promise rest on grace? And faith reaches out and lays hold of the promise. God will do it all in his own offspring, who will be an offspring of Abram. So grace is the beginning of all good things with fallen men. God's grace Man's work is no beginning. I want to talk now with you about his faith, Abram's faith. He is the man of faith, Galatians 3, 9. And his faith sits perfectly atop God's grace all over the passage in front of you in Genesis 12. First, we see Abram's saving faith. And then we see his living faith. First, his saving faith. Abram, who had been separated from God, separates from the world and comes to God having heard from God. He does not try to add God to the system of idolatry that he is in. Christianity is not about additions and additions and additions, keeping our life in the world and trying to add Jesus to it. Now, Abram separates himself from the world, and comes to God having heard the word of grace from God. He does not try to add anything to his idolatry. He makes a clean break with it, comes out, and comes to the Lord. This is saving faith. So in verses 1 through 3, Abram heard the news from God about God's own goodness, and hearing it, Abram leaves the world in confident hope of the world to come that will be created by God's goodness and at God's expense. 
Remember what you heard earlier from Galatians 3.8? Quote, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Abraham believed the gospel. And he heard it under those terms. In you shall all the nations be blessed. Meaning, Abram, in your loins, in your offspring, shall come the blessing for all the nations. Through your offspring, through your lineage, Abram, I am going to bring life to a remnant from all the nations at my own expense. So in Genesis 12, 3, when Abram hears God promise all the nations will be blessed through him, he has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, says Paul. That means Abram has just heard God promise that someday Abram will have this one offspring who will bestow on a remnant from all nations salvation and its blessing. That blessing is the opposite of judgment. That blessing is life, not death. That blessing is justification, not condemnation. That blessing is sins forgiven, not remembered. That blessing is sins dominions broken, not left to rule. That blessing is heaven gained, not lost. That's the blessing coming to all nations. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. Abram and all Christians have heard from God himself of his zeal to do good to us at his own expense, not sparing his one and only begotten son. Beloved, this is saving faith. Hebrews eleven six speaks of it. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We know that Abram has heard the gospel of saving grace and he has believed it by saving faith because the words that the Lord has given to him are a deliverance of God's goodness to somebody who doesn't deserve it. This is at the heart of of gospel preaching. This is at the heart of gospel believing. You know that you are resting your soul on the gospel when you are resting on God's promise to be good to you even though you don't deserve it. And that is most ultimately portrayed before your conscience in the giving of Jesus Christ, letting him be crushed under your load of sin and raising him up to the right hand of God in your nature to testify to you where you truly belong and where your true home is. The goodness of God is what is proclaimed in gospel teaching, preaching, speaking, believing. And you are hearing this this morning. And it's very possible, because we are modern Americans, that we are so tilted towards the instincts of the flesh that we don't even recognize this as goodness because the flesh wants goodness to be something I benefit from in this earthly life that I can weigh and measure against other men. That just shows us how far we may be from hearing the word of God. The goodness we really need to hear about is a goodness that answers fully, completely, to our sin. That is the goodness of the gospel that Abram heard. Abram, I'm going to do this, and he was taken captive. 
saving faith, he clung to the goodness of God, the good promise of God. But there's also living faith. Just as saving faith is taken captive by the word of God, so is living faith taken captive by the word of God. The difference between saving faith and living faith is not in what they hear. Both hear God. Both hear of the goodness of God. Both hear of Christ. The difference in the two is that saving faith receives salvation. Living faith works out the salvation that has been received. And it works it out not by what it sees, but by what it hears. And maybe you might be helped by hearing it this way. Saving faith receives salvation. That is justification. Living faith works out salvation. That is sanctification. And we see Abram's living faith as well in our text. The way that Abram's living faith is portrayed in Genesis 12 is really around three primary problems that I can explain to you very briefly. His living faith is revealed as he is confronted with three primary problems. I always got to make sure I'm holding up the right number of fingers. Here are his problems. Abram does not know where he is going. Verse 1. Abram does not have a fertile wife. How do we know that? In the previous chapter, 11, verse 30, it says, Sarai is barren. Now, the Lord has just promised Abram that he's going to bless all the families of the earth through his offspring. Abram does not have a fertile wife. That's problem number two. Problem number three, when Abram gets to the land of Canaan, he doesn't have it all to himself. The Canaanites are there. The Lord has deliberately set before the eyes, the sight of Abram, visible things that testify against what the Lord's word is saying. Abram, you don't know where you're going. You have a barren wife, and the Canaanites are running the roost. All of this is to demonstrate before the church that Abram does not walk by sight, but by faith. Living faith is not controlled by what we see happening around the world in front of us, happening in our job, happening in our home, happening in geopolitical thermonuclear war. Living faith doesn't need to see those things to know how to live. Living faith doesn't walk by sight. It walks by what it hears. And what it hears is the word of God. So Abram leaves his clan, leaves his father's house, leaves his country, goes to Canaan, and worships God. He doesn't go into Canaan and start measuring the drapes, thinking about where he's going to build his mansion. He goes into Canaan and worships because he already knows he has everything that God has promised him. He doesn't have it in its consummate final form, but it's as surely good as his, as is God. He knows it by the word of God. So he goes in and he worships twice 
on altars that he builds, little mini replicas of the mountain of God where God met with his people after he brought them out of Egypt. And he gives offering and praise to God because God himself is Abram's true country. And in fact, the book of Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abram and the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob, they never received the land. Do you know how much land Abram owned when he died in Canaan? He owned a burial tomb. That was it. It's where he buried his wife and had himself buried. He never owned any of Canaan. He never saw that promise of land fulfilled in his lifetime. Now, Joshua surely saw it. Abram did not. But Abram wasn't waiting to see before he ordered his life around the promise because he was walking out a living faith. He was controlled and constrained by the word of God. He didn't figure out how he was going to live today based on what people around him were doing, based on what princes and governors were doing, based on what the stock market was doing, based on whether his kids hated him or didn't hate him. He was living by the word of God. That's living faith. The most important thing we can learn about Abram is not what Abram himself did. It's not even his faith that's the most important lesson. But what God did for Abraham, what God said to Abraham, when God said it, when he was dead in the dark, hard and stony cold idolater, the most important thing we learn about Abraham is who his God is and how his God drew near to him and gave him a foundation of grace and set within him a faith that listened to the word of goodness in God and came out of the world and hoped in the promise. Not the hope the way modern people think of hope. Well, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't happen. No, a hope that completely governed his life because of the God who spoke. Let us pray then. Father, help us now as we close this message to believe as Abram believed, to believe that your word to us is a good word, that it is so good and contrary to our deserving that it almost takes us by surprise and we scarcely believe it at first. But help us to believe it. Help us to believe that you are willing and freely giving the blessing that all sinful men and women need, life, eternal life, freedom from judgment, forgiveness of sin, the dominion of sin broken. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would help us believe that heaven has been opened to us and that Jesus Christ loves us and has given his life for us to bring us into his family and that we belong to him and not to ourselves, not even to our parents ultimately, not to the world, that we must leave anything that hinders us from, from going with Christ, from confessing Christ, from living for Christ. Oh Lord, help us see the grace that has laid that foundation for us to believe. Take us captive by your word. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen.